Good morning, church. If you've got your Bible, we're going to be in the book of James this morning, chapter 5. The book of James. If you don't have a Bible, we'll have the words up on the screen behind us. If I haven't met you before, my name is Chase Jacobs. I'm one of the pastors serving on staff here at Desert Springs. Thank you for being here if you're visiting with us this morning. And we are concluding our series uh, that we started in December on the topic of waiting this morning. And so we're going to be in James chapter 5. We're going to be looking at just two verses, verses 7 and 8. So everybody there? Okay, let's read this. This is James 5, verses 7 and 8. Be patient, therefore, brothers and sisters, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth being patient about it until he receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Will you pray with me one more time? Oh God, as we turn now to study your word this morning, we ask for your help. Because God, none of us can rightly understand what it is that you are revealing to us apart from your help. We need your Holy Spirit to remove the blindness from our eyes and the hardness from our hearts, to unstop our ears so that we can actually hear what it is that you're saying to us. And so, God, we pray that you would do that, that you would prepare our hearts to receive what it is that you're trying to teach us this morning. God, if some of us have not believed on you at all, have not have not yet heard your word in truth, God, I pray that you would help them to hear this morning for the first time, that you would illuminate their hearts and they would see the glory of the gospel. And Lord, for all of us who have put our trust in Jesus Christ, our reigning king, God, I pray that you would use this time as we study his word to make us more like him, make us more like Jesus so that we can be a reflection of your glory to the world. We ask for your namesake, amen. Well, you've never seen faith until you've seen the faith of a farmer. That's what one of my mentors told me many years ago. He had spent uh, several years serving as a pastor in the rural Midwest. And so most of his congregation was farmers. And like real farmers. Not, it's fun to grow tomatoes in my backyard farmers. But my entire livelihood depends on this crop kind of farmers. And at the time he and I were meeting together, he had since moved and had been pastoring in the Dallas suburbs for something like 10 years. And he was just kind of reflecting on the difference between the ministry in the suburbs and this ministry in the rural Midwest. And, and he couldn't help but just talk about how differently those dear saints lived out their faith. How different their priorities were. How they walked in a sincere trust in God and in his providence, even how differently they prayed. And so I asked him, what, what was the difference, do you think? Why, why was it so different? And he said, it was because these farmers were under no illusions about the limits of their own control. Because at the end of the day, success in farming really comes down to one thing, doesn't it? Weather. 
That's not to say that there's not a lot of hard work that goes into farming. There's a ton of work. But, but still, all it takes is not enough rain or too much rain or a late frost or a heat wave. And all of your hard work is undone. So farmers understand just how dependent they are on God and how little control they actually have in this life. And that understanding grows their faith. And so they are an example to all of us of what it means to wait patiently and faithfully for God to provide in his timing and according to his will. And that's what this short passage from the book of James teaches us this morning. That's what James would have us consider, farmers. And he's going to exhort us, the church, to be patient and wait like a farmer until the coming of the Lord. That's the big idea of these two verses. Those three points are going to be the three points in our outline. Be patient, wait like a farmer until the coming of the Lord. So let's look at this first point. Be patient. So this is at the beginning of verse 7. This is the main verb of the whole thing. It says, be patient. And then look at the very next word. Therefore. Now you guys know what's the rule whenever you see a therefore. What do you have to ask? What's it there for? This command to be patient has everything to do with what came before it. In this letter. So if you've read the, the whole book of James recently, and, and, and if you haven't, you should go read it. It's very short. It would probably take you 30 minutes to read the whole book of James. But if you've read it recently, you would remember that James is writing to a suffering church, or probably multiple churches, a group of churches. If you were to flip over to the beginning of the book, to chapter 1, the very first thing that James says after he greets this church is this, chapter 1, verse 2, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. So this is a church that is undergoing trials. They are being tested, and, and James is writing to encourage them, in fact, to tell them to rejoice in those trials. From the more immediate context, we get a, a more clear idea of the kind of suffering, how specifically these churches were suffering so if you look at the verses immediately preceding our passage, okay, chapter 5, verses 1 through 6 or thereabouts, well, there James condemns unrighteous, non-believing, wealthy people because they have been unjustly oppressing the righteous poor. So that's the, the context. Look at chapter 5, verse 1. He's addressing the rich. He says, come now, you rich. And then verse 5 of chapter 5, he says, you rich have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. So this is the suffering that the church has been undergoing. They have been oppressed by the unbelieving wealthy people around them, and they can do nothing to resist it because they don't have any power. They don't have any control. This is the suffering that they are going through. Now, now let me take a moment and just remind you all, church, that most of you, probably all of you, are actually rich by James's standards. I know many of you say, what are you talking about? 
I don't feel rich at all. But if, if James were to jump in a DeLorean and fly to the future and come look around at our church, I think he would be overwhelmed and astounded at the material prosperity and the security that we experience. That really any average Christian in the West experiences, especially compared to James's own day, but even compared to our brothers and sisters in different parts of the world. And I'm not saying that that's automatically bad, and I don't think James would either. Okay, what James is condemning these people for is not the fact that they're rich, but that they're unrighteous. Okay, but what he is saying, I think, is that with wealth comes a terrible temptation to unrighteousness and injustice and arrogance and self-indulgence. So I think we need to heed that caution. But this church that he's writing to, they are being oppressed by these unrighteous, wealthy people. They're going through these trials. They're suffering. And, and that explains the therefore in verse 7. Because in verse 7, this is when James shifts who he's talking to. No longer is he addressing the rich, but he says, Be patient, therefore, brothers and sisters. Be patient, Christians, in your suffering. And what does it mean that he feels the need to tell them to be patient. What are they being tempted to in their suffering? Impatience. They're tempted to be impatient in their suffering. And so we could ask, what would their impatience look like? Well, again, if you take the whole book of James in context, I think it gives us an idea of where they're tempted in their impatience. They might be tempted to showing partiality. In chapter 2 of James, it's all about not showing partiality because what it seemed like was happening was that the church was showing favoritism to those who would come in and who were wealthy, who clearly had power and influence in the society. They were, they were trying to, to do favors for the rich people so that maybe they could get a little piece of their power, a little piece of their influence and control for themselves. Even though, as James points out in chapter 2, it's actually those people who have been oppressing them. So they're showing favoritism to the people who are oppressing them to try and get out from underneath that oppression. But they're tempted to show partiality in their impatience. Or, based on chapter 4, they may be tempted to act pridefully and arrogantly themselves to say, you know what, we're going to go to such and such a town and we're going to trade and we're going to do this and we're going to make it ourselves. They're trying to improve their lot. They're trying to eliminate their suffering apart from God's will or apart from God's help. They're acting arrogantly. Their impatience especially, it seems to take the form of them sinning with their mouths. If you read through James, it's it's quite a lot of the book is dedicated to him correcting people and correcting Christians and how we talk to one another, how we, how we use our mouths to curse other people when we should be using them to build up. Well, he's probably addressing that point, especially in chapter 3, because that's what this church is struggling with in their impatience. They're grumbling. They're sinning against each other with their mouths. You know, and there's a weird amount of talking about murder in the book of James. So I wonder if he knows that this church and their impatience is being tempted to violence into avenging themselves on these people who are oppressing them. So James is here saying in verse 7, don't give in to those temptations. I know what you're feeling. I know you're suffering. I know you're tempted to impatience, but don't give in. Be patient. We're tempted to impatience in the same way, aren't we? 
Actually, I think if we stopped and examined ourselves and we considered what was really at the root of so much of our sin, if we asked ourselves after we sinned, why am I doing that? What's really at the heart of that? What's at the root of that that is giving birth to this sin? Why am I sinning the way that I am sinning? I think if we really examined our hearts, we would see that so much of our sin, maybe all of our sin, in one way or another, is just the result of impatience. It's a failure to wait patiently. We just can't wait to have our comfort back. We just can't wait to have this passion or this desire satisfied. Or when we realize that we can't eliminate our suffering in the time and the way that we would want to, then we just get angry and frustrated because it's too much. It's taking too long. So just like the first sin of Adam and Eve, all of our sin is really just wanting to reach out and take or do something for ourselves to satisfy ourselves or protect ourselves or gain something for ourselves apart from God. When what we should be doing is waiting for God to provide that very thing that we want, to satisfy that longing that we feel, but in his time and in his way. Even if that time and in that way is in eternity. We are all guilty of the sin of impatience. And oh, what hope there is for us in the gospel. Because Christ has saved us from our sins. Even the sin of impatience. And do you know how Christ saved us from our sins? Well, one of the ways was by being patient. Last week, Alex showed us how how the Lord is patient in this big redemptive historical sense. That he's slow to bring judgment because he's waiting for the full number of the elect to be brought in. And one of the oldest statements that God makes about himself, about his own character, is that he is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. God is patient. And we see that patience revealed even more clearly in the life of Jesus Christ, God in the flesh. Jesus was incredibly patient throughout his entire life on earth. He waited 30 years before he started his ministry, the whole time knowing exactly who he was and what he had come for. And then when he did start his ministry, for those three years, he was patient not to reveal reveal too much too fast. Remember the Gospel of John? He keeps on saying, my hour has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. It's not time yet Jesus was patient to resist temptation when the devil was holding out to him the opportunity to satisfy his longings right then and there. But Jesus was patient. He was not going to satisfy his longings apart from his Father's will. And Jesus was patient with other people. He was patient with doubting, foolish disciples. He didn't break a bruised reed. He didn't quench a flickering wick. And Jesus was patient most of all in his suffering. Actually, did you know the word patient comes from a Latin word that means to suffer? Patience and suffering are tied 
together. And Jesus patiently endured suffering his entire life all the way to the cross. And he was in complete power, complete ability, complete control while he was on the cross. He could have taken himself off of that cross. He could have ended his suffering at any moment, but he didn't. He patiently endured that suffering because he knew that he would get something better after it. You. He suffered patiently so that we could be saved from our suffering. He redeemed us from our sins. And so what an encouragement that is, that Jesus has succeeded where you have failed. Have you been impatient this week? If our going to heaven had anything to do with how patient we were, we would all be ruled out. But Christ came and was patient on your behalf and suffered the wrath that you deserve for your impatience so that you can have life. And more than this, Jesus Christ has given you his Holy Spirit, the helper. His spirit, his patient spirit is in you if you have believed in Christ. That's why one of the fruit of the spirit is patience. So now he is at work in you, helping you to be like him. So, so just like this suffering church or churches that James is writing to, we are all tempted to impatience. And that temptation often gives birth to sin. But because of Christ, and because of his spirit in you, we can heed James's command here. Be patient. Don't give in to that temptation. So then we have to ask, okay, well, how exactly are we to be patient? What, what do you mean, James? Well, this brings us to our second point, where James says that we should wait like a farmer. So still in verse 7, James says, See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. In verse 8, he'll say, You also be patient. Be patient like that. Wait like a farmer. So it helps us to remember that while James uh, begins like a typical New Testament letter or an epistle, the bulk of this book actually reads much more like wisdom literature than an epistle. So James is really a lot more like the genre that you would find the book of Proverbs in the Old Testament or Ecclesiastes or Job to be in. It's actually been referred to by some as the Proverbs of the New Testament. This is a kind of Christian wisdom literature slash epistle. And in true wisdom literature fashion, this illustration that James is using here, it's a textbook example of a proverb or, or even what you would call a short parable. Because what the wisdom writers were doing is they would draw comparisons based on observation of something that they would see in real life. And then they would draw those parallels to your own life and, and help you find some moral or some application that can help you navigate the world wisely. So that's what James is doing here. He says, see, look at, observe the farmer. And then draw these parallels between his work and his attitude and your own situation. So what is James calling our attention to with the farmer? Well, I think there's two big principles that he's getting at. A farmer waits patiently because first, he knows that the things he really wants take time to mature. And secondly, 
he knows that he is ultimately dependent on God's provision for those good things. So he knows that good things take time, and he knows that all good things come from God. Those are the two principles. So, so let's think about these for a minute. First, he knows that it takes time for the crops to mature. Or James doesn't call it the crops, he calls it the precious fruit of the earth. What he's trying to get at is how much the farmer is really looking to the thing that he wants. Because this is his whole life, these crops. So he is eagerly waiting for those things to come. But he knows that it takes months for the seeds to sprout and start bearing fruit. And it would be foolish for him to expect them any sooner than they're supposed to come. So my family is the, it's fun to grow tomatoes in your backyard kind of farmers. Which is to say not farmers at all. Just to... But last spring we, we planted a whole bunch of seeds in our raised beds that we had built. And uh, my daughter got to help. She was five at the time. And she was walking around the house one day and she just said, Dad, I don't know what's wrong. I don't know why our plants aren't growing. And it had been like two days. <laughs> so I, I just had to explain to her, sweetie, you gotta wait. These things take time. But give it time. And sure enough, months later, our whole backyard was overgrown with this stuff. We planted way too much stuff. My daughter was impatient. She didn't know any better. She, this was her first time ever going through this. But that's just how plants work, right? You have to learn that. You don't expect fruit the very next day. But imagine a farmer that did. He would ruin his crops by trying to harvest them before they were ready to give their fruit. Or he would just give in to despair or anxiety when he's not seeing the fruit that he shouldn't expect to see for months still. But a good farmer knows that these things take time. And in time, the crop will come. So that's the first principle that James is calling our attention to. The other is that these good things that we're waiting for, these crops, they're ultimately the result of God's provision. And you might ask, where exactly am I getting that from these verses? Well, do you see how James makes mention of the early and the late rains? What he's talking about is actually an interesting feature of the Palestinian geography. The land of Israel has a very distinct dry season and a wet season. And the wet season runs from October to April. And it begins with this really heavy downpour of rain. And it was that rain that signaled to the farmers that they were supposed to start plowing their fields and planting their seeds. And, and it gets the ground good and wet. And then it rains a little bit throughout the rainy season, but then at the very end of the rainy season, there's this, this rain in, in like April where it just dumps again, and it's just in time to help the fruits ripen and mature to just the right moment. And then it's after that that the harvest begins. And it, the, this early and late rain, as it was referred to by the Jews, it was absolutely vital. If you didn't get the early rain or you didn't get the late rain, then that crop was was really deficient. And over and over again, if you read the Old Testament, you'll see mention of the early and the late rains, and it's usually connected to God's blessing and God's provision on his promised land and on his people. We began our service this morning with one of those passages, Joel chapter two, 
Be glad, O children of Zion, and rejoice in the Lord your God, for he has given the early rain for your vindication. He has poured down for you abundant rain, the early and the latter rain as before. There's lots of other examples that I could take you to in the Old Testament that make that same point. But what is the point? This isn't just weather. This isn't some natural phenomenon that just happens. It's the, the happening of chance or chaos. No, this is, this is something that is completely under God's control. And it's something that God gladly provides for his people according to his will. And so we wait for it, we pray for it, and we trust that God will provide. But we have no control over it. This is all up to God. And what is the sin of impatience if not really just a desire for control? Even a desire to try and take control away from God because you know better. You know better how these things should go. You know better how much suffering you can endure. You know better what blessings you should have and when. But a farmer, like I said that my mentor experienced when he was serving in the Midwest, a farmer is just acutely aware of what is outside of his control and where he is entirely dependent on God. Now, that doesn't mean that a farmer has no control or that a farmer has no responsibility. No, farmers have to work. They plow the fields, they plant the seeds, they prune. A farmer does everything that he can in his domain. But he knows that for all of his hard work and all of his effort, he cannot make up for his being dependent on God to make it rain. So the farmer can work hard as he waits for God to work, but he cannot work so hard that he no longer needs God to work. Whereas James says in chapter one, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. The farmer knows this. So those are the two things that James is helping us observe in the farmer, that good things take time to mature and that we are ultimately dependent on God for everything. And because of this, we can patiently wait. Now we'll see when we get to our third point that James wants us most of all to have an eschatological and and an end times, a heavenly perspective on our waiting and what we're waiting for. But I think because this is a parable, it's okay to take these principles and apply them to other areas of our life, even more immediate or temporal areas of our life. And I think there are so many ways that we would just be helped by considering this wisdom of the farmer and trying to apply it in our own lives. How can we, how can we think more like farmers in different areas of our lives? So as an example, consider what these principles mean for you personally and your walk as a disciple of Jesus, if you are a believer in Jesus. Well, brothers and sisters, we can be so impatient with ourselves, can't we? We're struggling with sin, or there's areas in our lives where we want to be more mature or more knowledgeable or more faithful than we are, and we grow frustrated or discouraged or anxious, even start to doubt our own salvation because we're not seeing the progress that we want to see, that we expect to see. I counsel people as a pastor often who are in this position, and so often I find that 
when they are struggling with that anxiety, it's because they are not measuring their growth as a disciple in terms of months and years, but in days and weeks. They're taking a short-sighted view of their own growth in godliness. They're being kind of like that little kid who just planted the seeds and then is despairing that nothing has grown yet. Brothers and sisters, give yourself time. Jesus is patient with you. And measure your discipleship over the long term. If you've been a Christian for a while, are you more righteous than you were five years ago, 15 years ago? Maybe you had a bad week this week. Maybe you gave in to sin. But are those struggles with sin less frequent than they were when you first became a Christian? Are you more sensitive to that sin than you were when you first became a Christian? Brother, sister, that's growth. That's God growing in you. Keep going. And it's right for you to have this this crop that you're looking forward to, this fruit that you're looking forward to, but it may take time to get that precious fruit. So just keep working, keep doing what God has told us to do because that's the other principle of being like farmers as we view our own walk as Christians is we can't be idle as we wait for God to bear fruit in our lives. Like I said, waiting like a farmer doesn't mean you aren't busy. It just means you are clear about what you should be busy about. God has given us very clear commands as disciples about the work that we can do and has actually said that as we work out our own salvation with fear and trembling, it's God who's working in us and through that to bear the fruit that we really want. And so if you're not seeing the fruit that you are looking for, maybe it's because you're not doing the work that you can be doing even as you wait for God to give the growth. So what is that? What is that work that a disciple can be doing, the plowing and the planting and the pruning that you can do as a Christian. Well, it's not as hard as we make it. Just like farming is not that complicated. Come to church. Study your Bible. Pray. Come to church. Confess your sins to each other. Find ways to serve in our body. Come to church. Share the gospel with your neighbors. Be generous with your money. Come to church. It's as simple as digging holes and pulling weeds. But it can feel tedious. And I know it can be hard. But do that day in, day out, and wait patiently for God to give the growth. And I promise you that in time, it will bear fruit. How can I make you that promise? Because God has made us that promise. So do the work of being a disciple and be patient for God to give the rain, the early and the late rain in your life. Galatians 6, 9, let us not grow weary of doing good for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So that's one example of how we could apply the principle of the farmer in our own lives, that we can apply it to ourselves personally. Let me use another example. You can apply that very same principle to other people. I think this is actually what James has on his mind 
as he tells the, the church here to be patient. The word that he uses for be patient in verse 7, it's, it's a word that's usually used to refer to being long-suffering with other people. And in verse 9, the very next verse in our passage of chapter 5, he says, Do not grumble against one another, brothers and sisters, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. Again, remember, one temptation in their impatience was to lash out at one another, to use their tongues to hurt each other, to not be patient, but to sin with their mouths. And James is saying that that's just as foolish as getting mad at your crops because they aren't producing fruit on your timeline. In chapter 1 of James, verses 19 and 20, he says this, Know this, my beloved brothers and sisters, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. What he's saying is that being impatient with other people is not going to produce the fruit that you want in them. Just like if you planted a seed in your yard and then yelled at it, it was going to grow fruit any faster. It's foolishness. Proverbs 14, 29 says, Whoever is slow to anger has great understanding, but he who has a hasty temper exalts folly. Be patient with each other. Don't get mad at them that they are not bearing the fruit that you think that they should be bearing. It takes time and it takes God's grace in their life. So instead of your anger towards them and your impatience towards them, what they really need is your encouragement. What they need is your help to see in them the little evidences of grace that God has been working over months and years in their own life. And what they also need is for you to do all that simple stuff I talked about with them. Bring them to church. Study the Bible with them. Take them out while you share the gospel with others. Most of all, pray for them. We are very aware of how much we want God's compassion in our own lives, how much we want God's blessing in our own lives. But do you pray that for the people that you're tempted to be impatient with? They're as dependent on God's grace as you are. So pray God's grace for them and pray that God would give the growth and bear the fruit in them that you're wanting to see. So that's another example. We can be like farmers as it relates to how we interact with other people. Let me give you one more. This is how we can be patient and wait like farmers with respect to the church. And by that I mean our church specifically. So I'm talking to members of Desert Springs Church here right now. If you're not a member here, you're just visiting. Um, hopefully this is helpful. But we need to be patient with our own church, brothers and sisters. And what do I mean by that, that we need to be patient with our church? Well, uh, it could mean that we need to be patient with all of the construction and renovation stuff that is, that is happening. Anybody else getting impatient with all of that? Just trying to find a parking spot this morning? What's funny is we actually planned this Sunday to preach this text when we were putting this series together is because we had really hoped that this would be the first Sunday that we were out of this room because phase one is completed and we were meeting over in the equipping hall and we were going to say like, look, we waited for fruit and here it is. Hallelujah, God is good. <laughs> it didn't happen. <laughs> we're still waiting. 
Now, if the Lord wills, we are just a few weeks away. I won't get your hopes up and tell you how many weeks. Keep waiting. But it's coming. So yes, we have to be patient with all of that, and thank you all for, for being patient all of that. But, but no, what I really mean when I say that we need to be patient with our own church is more to do with our ministry as a church. In our contemporary American evangelical culture, it is very common to measure the success of your church based on outward appearances. On things like how many attendees you have or how many services you have or the events that you're doing. And it really lends itself to this mindset that the bigger you are and the faster you get there, the better your church is. And when you have that mindset, then you start using methods or techniques that are really just designed to build up your numbers and grow your church, but it's superficial growth. We have to reject that. Not that we reject wanting to have more people coming to our church, so keep inviting people to our church. Not that we're going to reject doing activities, nothing like that. We're going to keep on doing and being busy with the things that we know that we can be busy about as a church. But when I say that we need to be patient with our church, what I mean is to say we cannot try to take control and manufacture growth in our church apart from God's will or God's timing. Because it's not numbers or impressiveness by worldly standards that matters most. What really matters is not the outward appearance of growth, but the kind of growth that God is doing in your hearts. That's what matters. That's what we're here for. And it takes time. Just like we have to be patient with ourselves, we have to be patient with our friends, we have to just extend that to the whole church and be patient because what we're looking for is real fruit, real growth. I have to remind myself of this often when I'm tempted to be impatient with what's happening in our church. I confess that I do. Our whole focus for 2022 was on evangelism. And we made this big commitment that we were going to go out and we were going to share the gospel. And you guys did such a good job. Praise God. I was, I mean, beyond encouraged by how many people came and said, oh, I was sharing the gospel with this person. They're one of my two. And I've shared the gospel with these people. And we went door to door and we did all of this stuff. Praise God that we got to do that. But has anyone else wondered, so where's the fruit from all that? Or I feel this when I preach a sermon. I bring the word, and then it kind of seems like nothing happened. I can be like a little kid, just looking at that seed, wondering, where's the growth? What's wrong? What did I do? What do we need to change? What do we need to fix? What do we need to structure into our church so that we can make the growth happen? No, we have to be patient. We scatter seeds as a church, and we wait for God to give the growth. There's a great book, an old book by Charles Bridges called The Christian Ministry. And there's a part in there where he's cautioning pastors about how not to be impatient when they feel like their preaching ministry is not bearing the fruit that they want to see. He reminds them that your job is to just plant seeds. And then he says this, that seed may lie under the clods until we lie there too. 
and then it springs up. You don't know. We don't know. So that's good for me to remember as a pastor, but, but this is not just for me. This is not just for the pastors. Ephesians 4 says, really the pastor's job is just to equip all of you to do the work of ministry. So I wonder if you're tempted to discouragement or impatience with our own church. Let me remind you to be patient, to wait like a farmer as it comes to Desert Springs, to do the work that we're supposed to do. And that may mean that some of you actually need to start doing the work of ministry. Maybe you're a member here of Desert Springs, but you're not a part of that faithful work of plowing and planting and pruning that God has called us to do as a church. So maybe I need to exhort you there that you need to step in and start scattering seeds with us. You're going to hear more about this in coming weeks. Pastor Randy's already prayed for it this morning. But our focus for all of this year, 2023, is going to be on service in the church. And our goal and our exhortation to you, members of Desert Springs, is that you would all be able to answer the question, where do you serve at Desert Springs? Where do you serve in our church? And you would have an answer for that. Maybe your answer is, I serve in the children's ministry. I serve in the youth ministry. I serve in the biblical counseling ministry. I serve with the woodcutting fellowship. I serve with the music team or the running slides and sound on Sunday mornings. But every member of our church would know where they serve in our ministry so that we can all be busy with what God has given us to be busy with. But even as we're busy, we're patient. We're taking the long view. We're sowing seeds. We're waiting for God to give the growth. Even if that growth doesn't come until we're dead. But when we're dead, there will be a really nice building for all of those new converts to come <laughs> and meet it. Lord willing. Okay, so there are all other kinds of examples, different ways that you can apply the principle of being a farmer in your own life. I, I would encourage you just maybe in your community groups today or when you take somebody out to lunch after this, that you think about other ways that you could apply this, this principle. What does it mean to wait like a farmer as you build new friendships? What does it mean to wait like a farmer as you parents? What does waiting like a farmer have to do with our political views? What does it have to do with missions and the work that God is doing in the world? These would all be wonderful applications of this principle. But let's, let's finish. Let's get back to James's point here that he's making to this suffering, oppressed church. As he gives them this exhortation to be patient, he gives them the illustration or the example of a farmer to consider. I think the key thing, the key element that James is trying to get us to think about is actually what the farmer is waiting for. The precious fruit. He's already called our attention to us, uh, our, our attention to this once, and he's going to do it again in verse 8. So this is our third point, until the coming of the Lord. In verse 8 he says, you also be patient like the farmer. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Remember that he said this in verse 7. Be patient, therefore, brothers and sisters, until the coming of the Lord. And the farmer is waiting for the precious fruit to come. So like all the New Testament authors, James is writing eschatologically. That means end times. He's writing with the end, what happens at the end in mind. And really, he's writing like the end times are at hand. They're, they're here. Some of your translations might say the Lord's coming is near. 
And this is kind of surprising because James wrote that sentence 2,000 years ago. The Lord's coming is near. And many other New Testament writers, including Jesus himself, actually make similar statements. The Lord's coming is at hand. It's about to happen. So we have to ask, were they just mistaken? Did they get the timing wrong? No, remember what we saw last week, Peter's words. The Lord's not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness. But with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as a day. So based off of Peter's math, we have only been waiting for Jesus to come back for two days. Okay? So there's kind of this relative sense in that way, but really I think what all of the New Testament writers are trying to do is position ourselves at a moment in history where the end times have already started. We are already in the last days. So because that's true, the coming of the Lord is always near. You can actually see James saying this in verse 3 of chapter 5 as he's talking to the rich people. He's condemning them and he says, you wealthy people have laid up treasure for yourselves in the last days. So James is viewing all of this reality as we are already in the end times. It has already started in part in any minute now. Jesus Christ is going to return, coming like a thief in the night. And what James is saying is that 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 reality should make us even more patient. It's almost here. You only have to wait a little bit longer. It'll be here before you know it. You ever hear somebody say that? My wife is pregnant and with, with our third child. And when, it first, when we first found out, we were so excited. And we thought, oh, this is so great. We've got so much time. <laughs> we're already like halfway done. Not prepared at all. So, but you ever hear somebody say that? Like, oh, it'll be here before you know it. It's true. The coming of the Lord will be here before we know it. And that word that James uses, coming, it's a really important word. It's weighted with a lot of significance. It means more something like the arrival of Jesus. It's a word that the New Testament authors use, and they know that it should trigger for you all of these other things that are going to happen at the same time. So when he says the coming of the Lord is at hand, he means this is the day of the Lord. This is the moment when the last trumpet sounds, when Jesus comes with the clouds just as he went. And with him are thousands and thousands of angels. And the dead in Christ are raised. And those who are still alive are caught up together with Christ in the air. So that we all go up to Jesus in the clouds where he is. And we form this like massive parade or an army. Coming down out of heaven. Following Christ as he grabs the heavens and the earth. And he shakes them. And he makes everything new. At the coming of the Lord, we get our resurrection bodies. At the coming of the Lord, he restores creation. At the coming of the Lord, he removes all the causes of sin and lawlessness on the earth. At the coming of the Lord, he destroys our enemies by the breath of his mouth, including all of those unrighteous, wealthy people who have been oppressing us. At the coming of the Lord, he makes everything right. In church, when Jesus comes, there will be no more waiting, ever. 
every longing that you have will be satisfied. Every passion that you have will be fulfilled. Everything you want, you will have. The desires of your heart, like we saw in Psalm 37. When the coming of the Lord happens, there will be no more suffering. When Jesus comes, there will be no one to be patient with because all of the church will be perfect and so will you and all of the unrighteous will be gone. The coming of the Lord is what we're waiting for. The coming of the Lord is what satisfies everything that we want right now. The coming of the Lord is the remedy to all of our impatience in this life. Just wait a little bit longer, church, and you'll have it. You'll have it, and you'll have it from God. It's so good. It's so close. Just like we looked at in Romans 8 on Christmas Day, it's going to be so glorious that it's going to render this whole period of waiting as not even worth comparing to how wonderful it is. So that's what James is calling our attention to. And you know, the more I mature as a Christian myself, the fruit that I see in my life that has surprised me is that I think more and more about heaven the more mature I get. I spend more time thinking about heaven now than I did when I first became a believer. Is that true of you? If it's not, let me, let me encourage you to that. Because this is what we're waiting for. This is our precious fruit. This is the hope that we have laid up for us. So think about the coming of the Lord. Think about what it will mean for you. Think about how you will be satisfied. And wait. As I said, Jesus Christ has exceeded in every way where we have failed. And Jesus has guaranteed this for us. We know that this is coming. We know that God has already provided the early rain. And we wait for him to finish what he began. So what does James say? Because we have this hope so firmly established. He says, establish your own hearts. Strengthen your heart. Stand up straight. Take courage again. Remember what your hope is. And wait patiently. Don't give up. Be like a farmer. Let's pray. Oh God, we thank you so much for the hope that is laid up for us in Jesus Christ. And God, we confess to you again our sins of impatience and not waiting for you, not trusting you the way that we should. And so God, we pray that you would help us there. We pray that you would encourage us with the hope of heaven. Lord, I pray if there's anyone here who would not yet be glad at your coming, they would instead find that a day of judgment and wrath. God, I pray that you would change their hearts right now so that they would join us at your coming and rejoicing in the good things that you are doing. Lord, for all of us, establish our hearts in the hope of Jesus Christ. In his name we pray, amen.